Well, I'm so thankful to be here. I'm thankful for uh, your pastor, and Pastor Steve has been a blessing to me through his own uh, writings, uh, his book. I'm bad with book titles. Grace in the River, is that? Some was it? Strength in the River. Uh, everything is grace in my world. Uh, Strength in the River, it, it ministered to me in my own life um, when uh, I had a daughter who was, who was not doing well. She was in the hospital. And, you know, it's hard to write a book on trials that navigates the sovereignty of God with compassion. Because isn't it so easy to tell people, hey, Jesus has got this. You know, let go and let God. Why are you still worried about it? I just told you two seconds ago, Jesus has got this. Um, and, uh, but that book had such a pastoral tone and a, a reminder uh, that God is indeed um, sovereign, but in a warm and winsome, winsome way. So thank you, brother, for your work there. Uh, and I'm grateful for your church. I see a lot of familiar faces um, and uh, ha- have met many of you already, and I'm thankful to be here. Uh, I met two guys this morning, asked them if they were married, and they said yes, but then clarified not to each other. Um, <laughs> So it's California, so I thought it was an appropriate question, but now that we've gotten that out of the way, dear, would you hand me my phone in that box? Um, it has the time on it, not that I will pay attention to that anyway. Um, thank you. Uh, well, I want to begin this morning uh, by talking about where government comes from. So you can open your Bibles to Genesis 9. Genesis is the story of where everything comes from, and that's a good place to start. Genesis, the end of chapter 8, and then chapter 9 is where we'll begin. I'm glad to speak on something like government and politics and where our rights come from and how to think politically because it's not controversial and everyone will agree with me. (laughs) Uh, I'm, of course, an expert on politics because I live just south of the Pentagon. That's what makes you... That's what makes you an expert. Uh, I, I joke about that. But I do have the benefit of um, being able to drive by the Jefferson Memorial all the time. It's overshadowed by the Washington Monument, but there on its, its right is the Jefferson Memorial. And it's fascinating to look at the differences between the Lincoln and the Jefferson. You know, uh, President Lincoln is looking up towards uh, the, the Capitol building from his, his chair in the Lincoln uh, monument. He's looking across all of D.C. The White House is out of the vision on his left a little bit, but he is just, he's giving the stink eye to Congress. That's what he's doing. And he's, he's sitting down, um, and he has his, his speeches around him, but he's sitting, and he's keeping a sharp eye on government. And there's uh, many other things that can be said about it, but it's uh, without question that Lincoln believed that our rights and freedoms came from God, and it was the government's uh, responsibility to protect them, and to, the danger of that would be the government would take them away. Uh, and so that's all captured by Lincoln sitting there. He's not on the offensive. He's sitting down with Civil War speeches around him, uh, staring down Congress. In contrast, and he's in a walled building. I mean, all of the freedoms are given by God. They're settled right there. In contrast, there's the Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson is standing up. Uh, he has a whimsical look on his face. He has got his back to D.C. He, he is totally giving the cold shoulder to all of Washington, D.C. He's looking down towards Monticello, casting his eyes homeward. He's looking over the south. It's got pillars all around. It's totally open. Uh, in Jefferson's worldview, there's really nothing that is, is settled. And all of our freedoms and all of our, uh, our rights come from the people in his 
mindset. Uh, certainly Jefferson had some concept of God. I'm, I'm not denying that he, he did. But he's just, even in the architecture, is looking out to the world, to the hoi polloi, the people of our country, to make sure that freedom endures. What a contrast with Lincoln, who is seated and stated. And that really, uh, the difference between those two captures the divide in our own country over the source of government. I mentioned last night that every four years you hear that this next presidential election is the most important election ever. Amen? If you guys don't write, write, vote the right way, it's all over as a country. Forget about it. Um, you know, that's been said every election since Washington retired. And as I mentioned last night uh, in, in that first election, really boiling down between Adams and Jefferson, People lamented that if Jefferson won, our our freedoms are over. We'll just be a subsidiary of France if Jefferson wins. And fortunately, Adams won, and everybody, you know, Christians celebrated, and uh, democracy will be defended uh, until four years later. Yikes. (laughs) Um, And eventually, uh, Jefferson gets in the White House. And as I mentioned, we have a monument for him and everything. But it is worth asking yourself a question is every presidential election the most important one ever in the history of our country? And if not, why do people keep saying that? Um, and it starts to, to pluck a chord in the strings of our hearts here. People say that because we're a democracy and you can investigate the issues in government. You were told since you were a, a wee little lad or lass in school saying the Pledge of Allegiance. Do they do that in California, the Pledge of Allegiance in the school? Okay. <laughs> saying the Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, you learn that democracy is a stewardship and you want to be engaged. And, and so there's a bare minimum of investigation that goes. You're like, okay, I'm going to vote. I may as well find out who the candidates are. And once you start down that road, it's like, oh, what are the differences between the two of them? And I'm talking like five minutes. We're talking to the disengaged voter here. Five minutes of research before they vote. They've Googled for five minutes and they're invested suddenly. You know, they, they will have spent more time uh, deciding which brand of pre-made pancake mix to buy at the store. Um, they'll have more passionate opinions about uh, which donut is best. Um, but they're fully engaged for five minutes in who they'll vote for. But that sense of engagement gives conviction to them because you, you've, you've spent time researching the issues. Now, I'm sure many of you spend more than five minutes investigating the two political parties. And so because of that, your convictions are going to be even stronger and deeper. And that produces this sense in you, like, I'm, I've researched the issues, I'm engaged now, and now I have convictions about it. And it's hard with you know, a binary choice here to have your convictions not spill over into the world of ultimate importance. You know, you've you settled convictions on who you're going to vote for and why. Those that disagree with you are obviously wrong and borderline heretics. I don't even know how they can be Christians. Uh, and that's from five minutes of, of, of thinking about it. That's the nature of a democracy. It has a polarizing effect when you view your view, vote as a stewardship issue and you've researched it, etc. But, you know, before Jefferson and Adams were political opponents, they were allies. And that's a part of our history that is often overlooked Um, Remember, Jefferson was a Virginian. He owned slaves. He had tobacco. Adams was a defense attorney in Boston. The two guys had nothing in common, different outlooks on so much. But they did settle. This is 20 years before their election. They did settle on the, in their mind, the critical issue facing a democracy was to establish where the source of divine rights is. And they settled on the word unalienable. 
um, unalienable, which means it's not able to be taken away uh, or they're not able to be granted. Both Jefferson and Adams believed that your rights were given to you by God. Now, they might have different views of God. And of course, as they became presidents and the United States was declared independent and established as a country, they went in different directions about how to maintain those rights. But at the very source and origin of our country, there was this idea that, that rights have to be more secure than a king. You know, if you say your rights come from government, your rights are only as secure as the government is. If you say your rights come from a king, the king can give them, but the king can also take them away. And so they set that aside and say, well, if our rights don't come from government, where do they come from? And they settled on the language of all men are, are created equal. And just think about that kind of sentence right there. Created is a passive verb. You were created. That means somebody acted on you. And if creation, you know, creator is created is the passive verb, the subject of that verb is going to be the creator, that you were created, implication by a creator. This is the very concept of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the very concept of unalienable rights, the ideas that they come from God. And so a good government in their mindset is one that doesn't secure rights for you or grant rights, but rather defends those that have already been given. And we understand that tension in our own world. If you view your rights as coming from government, you are going to be more inclined to look to government to right wrongs. You're going to be more inclined to look to government to bestow new things on you. Uh, Everything becomes a right then. I mean, the right to free college education, the right to a new car, the right to an iPhone that doesn't break. My iPhone broke. I demand government intervention right now. (laughs) Our so-called Congress and Senate does nothing while my iPhone breaks. Injustice. That's a little bit of hyperbole, but let's get to something more practical. Um, you know, your, your car is broken into in your driveway, and somebody steals something, your, your malfunctioning iPhone, somebody steals it from your car. What, do you, what kind of government involvement do you want? I mean, you want the FBI, you want Homeland Security, Kern County Sheriff's Department, you want a crime lab to come out, you want fingerprints dusted, you want the ring video camera surveillance in a four-mile radius, you want teams of detectives working in shifts. I mean, that's what you want if your car was broken into. But if the neighbor, like three houses down, if his car was broken into, and he asks, hey, can I see your ring camera footage, you might say, mind your own business, man. (laughs) No, come back with a court order. You understand when it's your own interests at stake, your view of what the government's role is shifts. That's because people are selfish. You're selfish. I know you're selfish because I'm a person like you, and I can be selfish. I recognize myself and other people. Uh, All these issues about the source of government, uh, you know, when it comes to crime in your car, you can multiply that with health insurance, vaccination, education, religious freedom, you know, peanuts on an airplane. You know, if there's a kid with a peanut allergy, you're not allowed to have peanuts within like four miles of the airport that day. And you think, I mean, that's, so, that's such an overreaction. Like, can't the kid drive? And when, it, when it's your kid on the airplane, you want the death penalty for somebody with a Snickers bar. Right. I think you understand that concept. When you're involved, it's different. Unfortunately, the Word of God gives us a guide to navigate this. Genesis is the book of origins. It's the book of beginnings. It tells you where everything comes from, where zebras come from, rainbows come from, marriage comes from, kids, continents, rain, everything. You want to know where something comes from? Find it in the book of Genesis. Even human life is described 
there. But what's interesting about Genesis, while it does describe where government comes from, it doesn't describe government in the beginning. When God creates Adam and Eve and he puts them in the garden and he calls them to be fruitful and multiply, he does not tell them to segregate themselves into diverse ethnic groups with government to guard the borders and collect taxes and punish crime. None of that's there. And even after the fall, when they're kicked out of the garden, they are not commanded to segregate into diverse people groups with diverse languages and diverse borders and currencies and governments and law and order and all that. It's just simply not given. When God rested on the seventh day, there were plants and animals, but no government. And when Cain murdered Abel, it was not the sheriff's department that responded. It was not a judge they were brought before. There was no jury sequestered. Instead, God himself became the lead investigator. He became the judge. He became the jury. And he became the one who handed down the sentence. And if you recall, the sentence was not the death penalty, but the sentence was that Cain could wander the earth. And Cain complained. Remember, Cain appealed. He said, I file an appeal. You can't. Uh, just have me wander the earth that my punishment is too great to bear. And so God put a, a bond on him and put a mark on him and said, don't touch him. Don't touch him. And of course, with that, violence erupted all over the place. Lemek murders the dude and celebrates it and murders seven guys and celebrates it. And there's nothing that anybody can do. There is no government to reign in Lemek. There's no government to, to check evil. And so the world in Genesis 1, well, 3 through 8, is filled with violence and it's filled with sin. This is why God floods the earth. I think that pre-fall world is way more technologically advanced than we might imagine. People lived longer lives. Uh, they could pass down more corporate knowledge. Think about how smart you'd be if you lived a couple hundred years old. <laughs> uh, think, of all the, think of how smart your kids would be because they would have your knowledge and they would have their own long lives and they'd have your grandparents' knowledge and their own long lives. And I think technology would have advanced uh, off the charts, it wouldn't surprise me if they could fly in the pre-fall world. Uh, 747, why not? And people say, oh, because there's no 747s after the flood. But listen, there's 747s now, and if, if you were the only remaining human after a flood, could you build one? I doubt it. You could barely build a typewriter. Uh, it doesn't mean there's not typewriters now. Um, and if there wasn't flight, and if there wasn't nuclear power or whatnot before the flood, it's not because they weren't smart. It's because there was so much evil, because there was no governments guarding patents, because there was no governments guarding intellectual property or whatnot, that evil um, perpetuates and it becomes a world of violence where you don't know how much longer you have to live. That's the pre-fall world. It's very different than we often imagine with cavemen hitting two rocks together. You know, the thing that makes Noah's Ark uh, noteworthy is not that he had the technology to build it, but the people didn't get on it. That's the, the contrast there. But anyway, the animals got on it, and God destroys the earth, and Noah in, in chapter 8, the end of chapter 8, gets off of the ark, uh, and in chapter 8, verse 20, Noah built an altar to Yahweh and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered the burnt offerings on the altar. I want to go through this and give you an outline of the blessings that God is now establishing in the post-flood world. The waters recede, and through chapter 8 is the image of the birds going out, uh, looking um, for places to, uh, to dwell. Finally, there's dry lands. They were on the ark for over a year. You know, you got the, the 40 days of, 
of rain and whatnot, but the waters, from the time they got on the ark to the time they finally were able to step foot off the ark was over a year. And when they come off of the ark, they, of course, find a, a new world, but they also have an immediate encounter with God's blessings. And these blessings are going to be the, order, the source, really, of, of government. They're gonna, the, the blessings of government are going to be defined by what you find when they get off of the ark. So the four blessings of government. Well, first you find is the freedom to worship. The first thing you find is the freedom to worship. God establishes the world where mankind has this freedom inherent to them. Verse 20, Noah built the altar to Yahweh. He took some of the clean animals, some of the clean birds, uh, and offered um, them on burnt offerings on the altar. Remember, Noah had the animals by pairs, but certainly they multiplied. He had some clean animals by uh, groups of seven, so they, he would have uh, animals to sacrifice, and I'm sure they, they multiplied as well on the ark. Uh, and maybe they didn't multiply, and that's why we don't have unicorns anymore. I don't know. Uh, who knows? But anyway, they get off the ark. They offer sacrifices. What's interesting about these sacrifices is they were not commanded by God. They were stocked by God. Uh, the, the ark had animals for them, but they weren't commanded by God. Uh, Yahweh receives them in verse 21 uh, and smells the pleasing aroma. And he says in his heart, I'll never again curse the ground because of man, even though the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. That's the same language in Genesis 6 where he said, I'm going to flood the earth because people are wicked. He repeats it. So the floodwaters did not change human hearts. The floodwaters did not wash sin off of the earth. The floodwaters were punitive. It punished mankind, destroyed mankind, except for Noah's family. But it does not substantively change the human heart. And God declares that in chapter 8. In the context of man's depravity, though, God is also establishing the freedom to worship. This is before Torah. There's no commanded offerings here for Noah. He is making what the Torah is eventually going to call a free will offering. And God says, I'm going to receive it. It's actually pleasing to him. God says, I'll never again strike down uh, mankind. I'll never again strike down every living creature as I've done. Verse 22, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will not cease. In chapter 9, verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's the second blessing. God gives them the blessing of family. It's going to be a joy to them. And the, the Old Testament goes on to describe children as a, as a joy. They're quivers in the hands of the, uh, in, in the, in the bow to take on the enemy. They bring children our blessings of joy. They're designed by God to be joy in the family, uh, joy in the human heart. This language, of course, echoes what was commanded back in Genesis chapter 1, to be fruitful and multiply. So here in the post-fall world, you have the freedom to worship. You're going to have the joy of family as well. This didn't change. In fact, family here is established even before government is established. Families are going to have children, and children are designed by God to bring their families joy. It's one of the highest joys imaginable. The New Testament, Peter, for example, in 1 Peter 3, 7, says he, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Um, Proverbs 18.22 says that. Sorry, 1 Peter 3.7 uh, calls marriage the grace of life. The blessings and joy in family have their root in this mandate given to Noah to be fruitful and multiply and have the joy that comes with families. This is a blessing God gives in chapter 9, verse 1. God blessed Noah. It was a benefit and a joy to him. Thirdly, God gives Noah food. 
He gives nature to him. You saw at the end of chapter 8, with as long as the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter. That's a hydrological cycle. Uh, uh, we don't know what rain was like before the flood. It doesn't seem like the earth had rain before the flood. The continents um, likely would have been, been joined. I mean, we don't know this for sure, but it seems reasonable enough to see the continents as joined and split during the flood, creating the hydrological cycle where water flows in the ocean, evaporates, and, and this goes in cycles. It's called a, a cycle. There are seasons. You experience this uh, right now, I heard kids running around the parking lot yesterday, uh, and a dad said, what are you guys doing here? And they said, uh, soccer was canceled. And there was like a, a freeze, and they both looked at each other because of the rain, the epiphany. They canceled soccer in Bakersfield because of the rain. That's a conversation that would never take place in Virginia right there. <laughs> it's raining. Everybody go home. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay. Uh, you guys do you. <laughs> you know, if kids get wet, they don't drown. You know, <laughs> they'll pull through. Um, whatever. There's a cycle, though, that goes with the hydrological cycle with weather and rain. This is designed by God to bring joy to the world, and it will bring food to the world as well. This is verse 2. The, it's the, the fear and dread of you will be upon every beast of the earth. Um, they will all uh, run away from you. Uh, all the, the birds of heavens will be afraid of you. Everything that creeps in the ground and all the fish of the sea, they'll be afraid of you. And into your hand they're delivered. Well, how is being afraid of you a, a blessing to you? Um, well, you know, animals can hurt you. Like a deer, a deer would box your head right off. A deer would punch you so hard you wouldn't know what hit you. Uh, and you think, oh, I can go pet that deer. It looks so friendly and cuddly. I'm going to go pet him in the head. Oh, that guy will just clean your clock, man. <laughs> Look out. A raccoon. My house has raccoons all over the backyard. And they're so, they come to the window and they used to eat my cat food. They get in the sunroom where the cat food was and they would eat it. They're so adorable. And like the baby raccoons, we would pet. Uh, don't, don't tell the government I'll get in trouble. But the baby raccoons were adorable. You could pet them. But the big raccoons, they were smart enough to run away. And that's probably good because if I got in a fight with a big raccoon, I think I would win. Like I'm pretty sure I'm bigger than him. I could throw him against the wall. I've, I've mapped this out in my mind. <laughs> like I could throw him against the wall. I think I could win. I'm like 95% sure. Uh, but it would hurt me. Like, the thing has claws and teeth, and it would bite and hiss, and I'm sure, though I'm confident I would win, I'm sure it would not be pretty. Fortunately, I don't have to find out, because as soon as I walk in the sunroom, they run away. Uh, you know, we have a bald eagle that hangs out in our backyard eating the birds on our bird feeder. Um, that bald eagle would own me. That guy, I don't think I could win. The talons on that thing would just take my head clean off of my body. But fortunately, when I walk outside, it flies away. We don't get in a fight. Uh, wouldn't that be a tragic way to go? <laughs> Sorry, I can't come to the conference on government because I got in a fight with a bald eagle. <laughs> but God made the animals run away from us. That being said, we can still eat them. And it's not just the animals we get to eat in verse 3. Every living thing that moves, you can eat that. But also the green plants. You can eat those things. You're commanded here to eat a side salad. It's right, written right here. You know, get the steak, that's fine, but uh, get the salad as well, okay? Uh, and, the, and the shrimp, you want the shrimp? Everything in the sea, you can gobble those up at the end of verse 2. So you got, the, you got the steak, you got the shrimp, you got the salad. It's all there as a blessing to you. 
And verse 4 says, don't eat the flesh with its life, that is its blood. I don't think that's a prohibition on you know, medium rare steak. I, I take that as you have to, just the normal cycle. You have to kill something in order to eat it. Now, you don't eat it while it's still alive. You have to kill it. This is the basic way the world's going to work. You're, this is what God tells Peter. Rise, kill, eat. I mean, it's coming from Genesis 9. You have to kill the animal before you eat it. And you don't try to eat it while it's still alive, of course. And verse, it separates you from animals. You know, animals will eat it while it's still alive. In verse 5, your lifeblood I will require reckoning. From every beast I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require reckoning for the life of man. Well, this is means that it's going to be acceptable to kill animals, not for cruelty, of course, or not for, uh, um, you know, immoral reasons, but you can kill animals for food, of course, and that makes it different than people. You don't get to kill people, which leads to the final blessing. We are made in God's image. We're made in God's image, and we have a life to be protected. As you see in verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, For God made man in his own image. It's hinging on image. The animals are not in the image of God, and you can eat them. People are in the image of God, and you're not allowed to kill them. Now, this is true before the flood. It was sinful to kill people before the flood. But notice what is different now. In the post-flood world, if you kill someone, by man's hand shall your blood be shed. I'm using the word kill here. I mean murder, don't get sidetracked by like just war theory or anything like that. Of course, war is, go for it. Checks evil, etc. That'll be the next session. But for now, for now talking about murder, if you kill someone immorally, expect to be put to death. Now it says, by man shall his blood be shed. Here's a pretty basic question. What man is going to shed the murderer's blood? Not the victim, Not the person who got killed. Abel doesn't rise up to kill Cain. No, the person who's dead, he's dead. He can't go avenge himself. So who is the man that is going to shed man's blood? And the implication here is going to be, I read into it, the establishment of government. That God is setting up an organization now where if somebody commits a crime taking a human life, the government will rise up, an institution of man will rise up and avenge the person's death. And this goes on from Genesis 9 to describe the advent of nations. The segregation of people into groups. The Tower of Babel comes next. There's the the language groups. The days of Peleg is coming, where the earth is divided by, by nations and language groups. All this is coming out of this blessing. Of course, being murdered is not a blessing, but the fact that your life will be avenged. This becomes a pretty substantive contrast between before the flood and after the flood. Remember, before the flood, some of these things exist. People worshiped false gods and they made sacrifices. They subjected their families to the horrors of violence and and all of that. It was an immoral world, but people murdered in that world. There was um, bloodlust everywhere, and God prohibited putting people to death for it. The result of that was pure chaos. If you want to read more about Lemek, it's in Genesis 4.23. You know, where Lemek makes his song. He says, I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, Lemek's revenge is 77-fold. He's almost describing, it seems like he's going to kill 77 people. And nobody can do anything about it. Lemek says, what are you going to do? You can't touch me. You can't kill Cain. You can't kill me. 
This is the pre-flood world. Killing and murder is commonplace. And so God enacted a change after the flood. He gives the rainbow. He won't flood the world again. But he also gives government, which will protect those blessings. I'll give you a second outline here. The four blessings are the four functions of government. You had the four blessings earlier of the post-fall world. Now you've got the four uh, functions of government. You could even say the four protections of government. And I'll give you all four at once. You'll notice the similarity to this outline. It's the same outline. This is what God designed the government to do, to protect the freedom to worship, to protect family, to protect food, and to protect life. The origins of government are seen in verse 6, and all of the blessings that lead up to that are given to government to guard. Now, I'm saying the four functions of government is to protect these things. You have to have in your mind the basic contrast between offense and defense here as it comes to the government. Offense, think of the football analogy. Offense gains field advantage. Defense defends field advantage. Offense is pushing into enemy territory to take over land. Defense is holding back the flood to try to keep them where they are until you get the ball back. Government, I'm arguing, has a defensive posture in the world. Government is supposed to defend these freedoms, not to acquire these freedoms. Notice that all of these blessings, all these freedoms, you could say it that way, come from God before government. Government then is established to guard them and to protect them. It's a defensive posture. Government's not designed to procure them. It's not designed to advance them, but to protect them. And you see this very much in our own nation's history. The First Amendment to our Constitution does not grant humans the right to worship freely. God does. The First Amendment bars the government from infringing on that right. The freedom of worship is not some arbitrary American spin that was developed by you know, Alexander Hamilton and has a nice ring to it, and so we embrace it. No, it's coming from the very foundations of the post-flood world, where Noah gets off the ark and offers sacrifices. Government's job is not to get in the way of that. Government doesn't have a mediatorial function. You don't worship God through the government. You don't worship God by going to the government in and. Some false religions have toyed with that by merging government and God together, but that's not the way it's designed in Genesis. You worship God directly while government protects that freedom. It doesn't mean the government should compel people to worship. Of course not. People have the call to worship independent of government. It's also not government's job to make you worship the right God. That's not given to government here as well. In fact, in Acts 17, uh, Paul says something foundationally different. Paul says, Acts 17, that God made from every nation and mankind uh, from one man. He made all the nations to live on the face of the earth, having determined their allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God. And perhaps they should find their way towards him. That's Acts 17, 26, where, where Paul says, God made all the nations... And he made them to go their own way, then they might seek God. That God establishes their boundaries and their borders. Then Paul comes in Acts 17 and says, you can't come to God except through Jesus Christ. So turn back to him. This is the concept of religious freedom. Government doesn't compel people to worship God. It enables them to worship God. It doesn't foster their belief in false worship, of course not, but it allows people to go their own way, ensuring that those who want to worship the true God can. Now, did God mess up here by allowing or even providing protection for religious freedom? I don't think so. 
Was God shocked when humanity only a few chapters later after this is going to go off and worship idols, whatever gods they want to? No, he's going to use that for his own advantage by calling Abram from the nations to start a new nation. Of course he is. It's not the government's job to foster the religion of the true God. It's the government's job to protect people's ability to worship however they want with the concept that people will be drawn in sin away from God, but in faith to the true God. This is why government has the calling to protect the rights of individuals to search for a savior so that people who want to can respond to God's offer of salvation through Jesus Christ. That's every government in the world, not just American governments. Every government in the world is called to protect people's ability to worship. Christian nationalism comes in, we talked last night, with the idea of the syllogism that government is supposed to do everything to foster true religion. Uh, there is a true religion in Christianity, therefore government should compel people or direct people to worship in the Christian religion. And of course, I would object to that because that's an offensive-minded approach. Uh, government's not designed to direct people to worship the true God, but to remove the impediments to worshiping the true God from their way. Are the things that are keeping you from worshiping the true God? Government should get rid of those things to enable you to worship God with a clean conscience. We, this whole list is going to play out the same way as that. Uh, that's freedom, family. The government's job is not to structure your family, not to interfere with your family, but to protect your family, to make sure the family is protected. Children are vulnerable. Uh, children are vulnerable to oppression. They're vulnerable to all kinds of horrible crimes. The children can't defend themselves. They're naive. They believe whatever their parents tell them. It's the government's job to protect the family. It's the family's job to protect children. That's perhaps the centerpiece of the new world order. None of the other commands will exist uh, without that. And of course, government exploits all these things. Government you know, will tax religion, will put its own impediments in to keep people from worshiping the true God. Government will interfere with families and you know, regulate what kind of education your kids should have and all this, which I think is an ungodly interference with the family, uh, because it's not government's job to do that. It's government's job to protect, not to advance, to protect children, uh, to protect the family unit, whereas the family unit's job is to cultivate that relationship. You see this in this area with the food supply. It's the government's job to protect the food supply. This is like where everybody believes in big government, right? You want the government rating your favorite restaurant and measuring the hot water temperature, don't you? Like you want to make sure there's not salmonella on the lettuce. Great, go for it. FDA, more money for them. Do your thing. That's the government's job is to protect the food supply. But doesn't government twist that also? You know, I have friends that farm in this area that for the longest time were having Problems watering their, their almond trees, watering their ap- apricot trees because of the, uh, the owl. Uh, and the government was convinced that if you, if you gave too much water to the trees, the tree might fall over and the owl nest would be destroyed. And my friend is like, you know, owls, the cool thing with them is they have wings. You know? <laughs> the owl is not going to drown. They would flood their trees. They used, to, they used to flood their field. They say it was the most actually economical and environmentally friendly way to water those kind of trees is just to flood the field a few times a year had the best long-term effect. But the government banned it because you don't want to drown the owls. And if the tree falls over, my friend's like, the trees don't fall over from too much water. Have you met a tree before? (laughs) Um, And if it did, the bird would go build a new nest. Birds are very good at building nests. That's kind of one of the the few things birds are good at um, is building nests. So the government twists it, though, to elevate the owl over the food. And that becomes an inverse of government's function. 
Government's not to protect the owl over the food. Certainly government can protect the environment. You know, we want environment. We don't want the owls extinct. Of, of course not. Go owls, you know. But you can't reverse the order. You can't reverse the order. The Delta smelt or whatever that little fish is that's running around in Northern California. It's regulating the King's River and all that. It's another example of that where the, the fish gets elevated over, the fish in this particular water gets elevated over the food supply. And that's kind of an ungodly affront to government. It's a twisting of government. And of course, government will always take more power because government is run by people and they always want more power than God designed for them to have. And so even with the food, you see how the government twists that. And then the final one, the government's job is to protect life. It's one of the most basic things our government is called to do is to protect life. Why should the government protect life? Because people are made in God's image. And so governments are called to protect human life. They're supposed to check crime, to guard human life, to let you pass down property in your family, to make sure you're not robbed, to make sure you're not killed. But even here in Genesis 6, the punishment for killing a human is more severe than for killing killing an animal, of course. But the idea is that humans are in the image of God and so they have a particular freedom and blessing associated with them. Now, fast forward a couple thousand years. United States of America. Um, You know, we have the Bible. uh, That's the most significant uh, book in our life, of course. We have our worldview in a lot of ways formed by the Declaration of Independence, by the U.S. Constitution. I want to go back to where I begin this morning and remind you that in our American experiment, all of these rights on the screen are not given by the government, but are given by God. The government's job is to defend them. That's the concept of an unalienable right. Now, why do people look to government as the source of those rights? And you saw this in COVID. I was here a lot. I spent a lot of COVID in California, and you saw this in COVID, where the government bureaucrats had this idea that the government gives the right to worship. Government can take the right to worship away. They viewed it as them as the source of it, so they can withhold it. And of course, they would argue they're withholding it for the greatest good, blah, 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 blah. But the root problem with it is the idea that if the government is the source of those rights, the government can cut them off. It falls to a Christian worldview to step in and say, those rights don't come from government. Government is not the fountain of these rights. Family doesn't come from government. Food doesn't come from government. Life doesn't come from government. Worship doesn't come from government. Those things come from God. And government's job is to defend them, not to retract them. But why do people so tempted to look to government as the source of those things? Well, I think one reason, especially in the United States, is that through our history, government has often deprived people of these things. Think of slavery, think of Jim Crow laws, think of segregation, uh, ungodly segregation in the South, those kind of things. That's the government that is doing the harm. So that's government stepping in and actively harming people. And if you're being harmed by government, you will look at that and say, government is harming me. The government should stop harming me. And you see the the mindset here. The government should stop harming me. And the government then becomes the source of removing your difficulty, removing what you're, you're going through. And the reason you view the government as the source of your help is because they're the source of your problem. But that is not clear logic. You know, just because the pyromaniac sets the fire doesn't mean he's the one you should call to put it out. (laughs) Um, Pyromaniacs are bad firefighters generally, I think. They have a skill set that goes in the other direction. Government is very good at taking away your rights, not very good 
at giving them. And so certainly the government is behind slavery and institutionalizing slavery and segregation and all that. And God sees that as sinful and will judge people who sin. God will be the avenger of the wronged. He will right every wrong and, um, and punish those with his own wrath who sins. Nevertheless, it's not, the solution to that is not to view the government as the source of equality, but to view the government as the perpetrator of inequality and to appeal to government to repent, not to actively advance a biblical worldview. Let me close with an uh, uh, article I read. Um, I read it just recently, uh, but it was from 2016, Psychology Today. Uh, and the hi- title, you can see, I normally don't read Psychology Today, but I came across the title of it, and I was hooked. The Danger of Claiming Our Rights Come From God. That was the title of this article. All right? So see, you would read it right now. I heard you skeptically roll your eyes. I heard you roll your eyes when I said psychology today. I heard it. But now you're like, oh, I'd read that. <laughs> um, and he argues from a very different worldview than mine, of course. But the thesis of his, of his article is to answer the question, do rights originate with God or with the government? All right? And he says in there, I'm going to read you a longer part of it. He says, it's nice to have a philosophical basis for the view that government can't deny our God-given rights. Unfortunately, the entire argument falls apart under scrutiny. In fact, it's a disingenuous attempt to elevate uh, a view of God in society. He says, let's consider the claim that our rights come from God. Since even believers will acknowledge that the very existence of God cannot be proven, this claim leaves us in a most unsettling position. So I read that and like fell out of my chair. Um, got back up. You can prove the existence of God. Stop it. But okay, let's get over that. He goes on to say, our most precious rights are apparently flow- for the Christian, our most precious rights are apparently flowing from an entity whose very existence can be reasonably doubted. Even believers acknowledge that faith as opposed to evidence is the basis of their belief. That's fine for one's personal religious outlook, but why would we then feel that cherished human rights and civil rights are more secure if they arise from that source than from the government? So you catch his logic here? You have to appreciate it to understand my counterargument. He's saying, we don't even know if God exists. So if you say your rights come from God, then you're left shrugging your shoulders and going, oh, I don't know. Believe it on faith. But we know government exists. Therefore, identify government as a source of your rights and all will be well in the world. And the counterargument to that, of course, is that government exists, but often it's designed to be taking away your rights. It's far more logically consistent and practically defensible to hold the biblical worldview of government that God blessed humanity with the rights to worship freely, to build families, to have food, and to live peacefully. And he established government to protect those rights. Yes, there are bad governments, but that doesn't mean that the rights come from government. Rather, the rights come from the God who made people who supersedes governments. Now, governments, like all people, fall short. And when the ship is headed in the wrong direction, it's not because ships are bad. It's not because ships don't work. Some ships sink. That doesn't mean ships are bad. Of course, there's bad governments. But when the ship is sailing in the wrong direction, should you obey your government? That'll be the question we look at in our next session. God, we're grateful for your design of the world. He made government to defend us and to protect the rights that you gave us. We are grateful for our country, which has embraced the sense of of freedom uh, in a really more profound way than any other country in the world had done so. Uh, We are thankful for the freedom to worship that our country has generally provided. We're thankful for the protection of the food source here in Bakersfield. Of course, we're surrounded by it. 
We're thankful for your protection of families. Um, we're grateful for our own. Lord, we uh, look at our brothers and sisters in Christ and recognize that our love for you is greater than our love for politics and for even for country, but we're thankful uh, for our country. And we give you thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen.